Carmichael provides supports and guidance to nonprofits, helping them to deliver on their purpose and comply with their compliance requirements. In this series, we'll be asking some questions and hopefully providing some answers on some of the big issues facing nonprofits today. I'm Dermot O'Corbui, CEO of the Carmichael Centre, and today my special guest is Louise Thompson, Head of Policy for Not for Profits at ICSA, the Chartered Governance Institute. You're very welcome, Louise, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here in Dublin and, and to meet in person because we've been communicating for the last few years by email. But before we dive into the, the topic today, which we were going to look at, board behaviours and ethics, you might give me a little bit of background information about your role and, and the role of the ICSA in, in the whole governance area for non-profits. I'm delighted to be here at my first podcast ever. So I have, um, yeah, popped my cherry, as it were, in terms of um, podcast terms. Um, so ICSA, or what we now are, is the, um, the Chartered Governance Institute. And we are a professional body that qualifies and supports governance professionals and company secretaries. And my role within that institute is to promote and disseminate good practice in good governance in the wider not-for-profit sectors. And for my sins, that includes charities, housing associations, local government, um, health service, anything that isn't really a corporate body that's listed in the stock exchange and things like that. So that really gives me a great breadth of experience and understanding of what good governance looks like in different sectors. And I can take what look, works well somewhere and hopefully adapt it and apply it somewhere else. So I'm there to help promote good governance, not just to our members, but to every charity that needs some help with some good governance. So we write guidance notes. We are a founder member of the Charity Governance Code for England and Wales. Uh, we do training. We do board reviews. Lots of things that you would expect a professional body really to do to help just maintain and raise standards and good governance across the sector. And when we were thinking about doing this podcast, there was a whole range of things we could potentially talk about. But I picked the area of board behaviour genetics because there's a whole range of challenges facing boards of non-profits and compliance requirements. But the longer I spend working with non-profits, helping them on governance, the more confirmed my belief is that unless the board behaviours and the ethics and the values that underpin those organisations are right, all the governance codes in the world and all the good intentions will be lost. So it's an area that we encounter quite a bit. I'd be very interested in get your view on the the types of issues that you would, you would encounter in terms of poor behaviours, and we're, we tend to focus in bad behaviours and that's sort of the consequences. You might just give me some idea of some of the things that you've encountered. I think um, if there's one good thing that came out of the financial crisis in 2008, it was actually this awareness that good governance is more than bits of paper. It's, it's more than policies and procedures. It's the people in the boardroom. It's the behaviours in the boardroom and the values that we live as trustees of our charities. So I think it's been really great in trying to rebalance some of the hard governance tactics and and factors with the softer governance areas. But of course, soft governance, such as behaviours and ethics and values, can be so difficult. One presentation that I used to do a lot was talking about poor trustee behaviours in the boardroom. So things like the the vampire trustee. So the vampire trustee lacks self-reflection. They don't have that opportunity to take a look at themselves and be able to hold a mirror up to themselves and say, actually, am I doing the best I can for this organisation? And am I bringing my whole self to the board? And along with that, we've also got what we might want to call the seagull trustee. 
So they will come in, they flap around, they make a lot of mess, and then they squawk off leaving for the staff to pick up the mess that they create. So these are all kind of behaviours. Yes, they're very generalised and they're very... But you can recognise them very easily. And another one will be the single-issue trustee. So they will only turn up when there's something on the board agenda that actually takes an interest in them. And that's something that I've seen in the NHS as well, where we talk about um, you might have a, a, a non-executive director from a BAME background but feels that they can only contribute on issues of BAME when actually they bring so much more to the table. And it's just kind of bringing other things that they, their life experience, their background, their perspectives. It isn't just that's a person of colour so they can only talk about issues right. of colour because right. they're individuals right. and they've got great things that they can contribute. So it, it's trying to get boards and individual trustees to bring their whole self and their complete A-game to every board meeting. So and are there ways you see that, that help to do that? How, you know, because you, that is a challenge, particularly when you've got dynamics in the board. The obvious one is start if the, the chairs. There's certain things that the board chair can do to help create that, that good dynamic on, on the board. A chair can either make a board or absolutely ruin a board. So the, the role is pivotal and it takes so much tact, diplomacy and resilience to be able to usher through a range of discussions and come out at the other end with the best decisions for your charity. So I think there are things about setting the tone for the meeting. One of the best meetings I saw again came from the NHS, but the chair just spent five minutes saying, we are here because we are going to make decisions that impact on the quality and experiences of the patients here and the people that work here and it's just simple things like that so in a charity saying we're here because these are our charitable objects these are the people we're trying to help and our role is to come up with the best decisions to achieve those aims and I think it just kind of it takes the ego out of the room and it just reminds everybody of the vision that they're trying to achieve and when you're talking about teams you you have to have that clarity of purpose that clarity of vision um, commitment shared values and understanding of where you're trying to go and what you're trying to achieve so I think a, a really good chair will just create that space yeah just on, on, on values because um, I had a session last night I was facilitating with um, a group of charity board chairs that we that we run and one of the chairs that was talking about they were having a particular Problem, and <laughs> not quite a few problems, but and they were talking. And she was talking to through the staff, and she said, "Well, the view of the staff is the values are for us, but not for you. But we don't see the values mm-hmm. being being applied, applied by the board." And it took her, she stood back and said, "Yes, I think we are. We are, we have to look at that." So that they did spend a lot of time teasing out, well, what do those values mean and how, in terms of, the, did the board reflect those values? And it did have a big transformative in terms of the, the attitudes of the individual board members. It sort of said, well, the values are not something for up on the wall for the staff to, and volunteers to live by. It, if we don't live by it, it won't come. So that tone is very, very, very important. The, I'm fascinated a bit about the seagull, because I've seen a few seagulls in my time. How would ch- how, what sort of things do you think work for, for a chair to, to, to manage a seagull? Hmm. I think part of the problem with the seagull is this this self-belief that they have about their role and probably being seeing themselves as more important than other trustees if they just come in and create a fuss and, and the senior management team are there to deal with their needs rather than manage the charity. So I guess it's that conversation between the chair, maybe an annual review or an appraisal or just a, an informal get-together to kind of go, how do you think it's going? 
is this the way that you thought it was going to go? Is Are you delivering what you wanted to do? How do you think other people perceive what you're doing here? Because I've been on the other hand of a, a charity board where I've been that member of staff, where we've seen the board come in, they've created a whole load of fuss, and we as staff are confused as to what it is we're then meant to do. So it is that it's, it's, it's again providing that clarity around what the board's there to do and how they then interact with the staff and being clear that actually the chair should be the one that deals with the most of the conversations with the chief exec and then the chief exec should pass on to the staff what's actually going to be done and what needs to be done and how it's going to be done. So I think it's that working out the the parameters of where the trustee role starts and begins. And it is that issue of trustees are leaders. They are leaders in their organisation. They might not run the organisation like the chief exec. They might not be seen as the figurehead like the chair might be. But they still should be seen to be delivering the values of the charity in the way that they behave. Because anybody who knows that they are a trustee of that charity and they don't see the values matching up to the deeds... It's going to undermine the charity. So I think an annual appraisal is just really good practice for those conversations about you could do better. Because it is something that I see more and more charities are beginning to look at this. What sort of things should they look at in that annual appraisal? Is this, you know, when they ask me, I say it's like it can be as, as broad and as deep as you like. But fundamentally, what are the key things you would recommend that? If a charity is starting an, a, an appraisal process of itself, of the board, what sort of areas do you think to concentrate? I th- this might upset a few people, but I think you have to approach it in a similar way that you would in your day job. You would want to be appraised to understand what you're doing well, what you could need to work on, and opportunities for development. So I think it's a very similar approach. Yes, you won't have KPIs that you're going to be fired by, as a trustee but you could set the expectations of what we need as a board is x y and z we need some information about this we need your particular insight around that we'd be really appreciative if you could do these subcommittees and perhaps look at chairing a committee in the future and just asking the open-ended questions about how's it going for you is would it you, would what you see you the chair having one, these one-to-one discussions with the individual board members? Is that an essential part of that? Yeah, yeah. so the chair would have one-to-ones with um, each trustee. I guess the vice chair would then have that conversation with the chairman, because, or the chairperson, should I say. Because, as I, as I said earlier, if you don't have a very good chair, it can kill a boardroom. Yes, and some of the problems can be from the chair, so the vice chair needs to step up. This, this, and again, this area of the vice chair, because a lot of boards don't have a vice chair, uh, or, or have a, 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 another senior member of. It would seem from that sort of situation, it's a, it's a good idea. What kind of role do you see the vice chair rather than somebody that steps in if the chair is unavailable? It's much broader than that. I think there's there's probably two concepts that we're talking about. Um, in the corporate world, we have the senior independent director, which is a non-executive director, who leads the board evaluation of the chair at that time of year and also will be the main contact between any stakeholders of the organisation where it would be inappropriate for the chair to be that main contact. So if the issue is about the chair, you would go to the senior independent director. And I think it's probably something like that that we're talking about in the vice chair. Um, In 2000 and 
15, 16, when we were looking at the revised Charity Governance Code, we did put a proposal in to have a senior independent trustee. And it was pushed back a little in the consultation responses that we got, so we dropped it as a recommendation. But in the feedback we've had this time round for the consultation we're doing for a 2020 update, it's one of those issues that keeps coming back, is actually it could be really good for when the chair is the problem, you have a go-to person that isn't just the chair in waiting, but has these wider roles. You've, you've, you've published a paper recently on that, I, I came across, and it was one that sort of, when you start reading, you said, yeah, of course, you know, there's a lot of role, and one of the roles I saw for, for this in the, the other person is the whole area of whistleblowing. Yes. Because sometimes what we'd hear from, say, from staff is that the chair and the CEO are thick as thieves, so there's no point raising it with the chair, it'll be brushed under the, the carpet, so that is another important role that there is somebody else yes so if you're a large charity you might have an audit committee and the chair of the audit committee might be that individual that is highlighted as a a person to go to to blow the whistle to if the normal processes and procedures aren't appropriate or not robust enough for the situation at hand. But the senior independent trustee could do that as well, if you, especially if you're not big enough to have an audit committee, and not many charities are. So it's, um, it is one of those areas about, OK, where is a clear line of accountability that I can go and talk to in confidence, um, that's actually going to respect the confidentiality and deal with this sensitively, that isn't just going to go straight to the chair chief exec and say, oh, well, what's going on here so it is it takes some real personal integrity for that in tr- that trustee and resilience and tact and diplomacy and and worldliness i think to be able to do it so i don't think it's a role every trustee could do but it is something that we could perhaps better develop some trustees to be better at right and and it is it is a formal role rather than somebody puts their hand on your shoulder, can you take this on? And what is what is this? I think it needs to be defined and put into context. And it needs the chair also to recognise the value of it rather than seeing this as an attack on them. The other area that we would come across, and I'm sure no different for you, is the relationship between the board and the chair and the executive, and particularly the CEO. Um, and speaking as a CEO, you know, I'd hear CEOs complaining about the board, but, uh, but sitting on the, with the, the board chairs from time to time, you get another picture. And that relationship can, I just say, like the, the chair's cr- critical, but that relationship between the chair and the CEO, what sort of things do you, would you suggest to sort of make sure that that is a good working relationship? I heard one speaker talk about um, the chair ceo relationship and the power of wine and the chair and chief exec going out every so often sharing a bottle of wine having a meal and just talking informally somewhere away from the office to just keep the communication channels open and then hopefully fostering this environment of no surprises so i think sometimes there is this feeling that chief execs were already all powerful they have all the knowledge they understand the charity better because they're there day to day and therefore they are in a position of power and influence that could possibly lead and direct trustees in a particular angle that's of interest to the chief exec but not necessarily what the trustees want to do so it is that maintaining that balance and just making sure that there are no surprises but also if the trustee board do want to have a conversation without the chief exec being present that it isn't a surprise to the chief exec because I would human nature would probably dictate oh they want to talk without me it's the first time they want to talk without me it's about me 
it's something I've done. I know. My uh, time's we, limited. I've been preaching this for other boards and I'm doing the thing and I said, on my own board, we didn't have that. And uh, when the first time, you know, it's formally in the agenda, it's board time. It was that strange feeling leaving. I said, okay, what are they going to talk about? You know, But once it becomes the part of the norm, as I said to them, even if it is just how that particular meeting went and how they felt they, it went in terms of the quality information or the discussion or, you know, th- those sort of things. And then we can feed it back. But... Um, and we were discussing this at last night at, at our chair's event, and they said that some have brought it that it starts at the beginning as well as the end. Because sometimes I look at the agenda and I said, oh, I see what the CEO is there doing, you know, let's reshuffle the, 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 the things and let's move it around a little bit. And sometimes the board might want to spend a bit more time on a particular topic. Um, and th- th- they found that quite, quite well. But one other said, Well, what happened is we weren't getting the teas and coffees at the start of the meeting, you know, because th- th- then. But again, I think part of it is the initial getting it in so that there is nothing to be feared as a CEO. And it is good for the board to create that, that sense of team as well. Because despite it, the CEO, as you said, and they control the flow of the information quite a lot. So they tend to spend a lot of time talking at the meeting. Despite their best efforts, they spend the time, a lot of time talking because it's either they're giving information or they're responding to questions. And to give that time for the rest of the board without the CEO there to sort of tease out, tease out is, is a good practice. So we had it informally, but now it's literally in the agenda, you know, board time. And we go. Um, and I, we were talking last night and somebody said what the CEO in this particular resented it and he'd make a big ceremony of wrapping up the papers and they said, will he ever leave, you know? But eventually it got in and there was nothing to fear, but it was sort of, why did they need this time? And I think once you get over that as a CEO and say, well, this is an important part of the dynamic and it helps the board. And if there are things like the quality of the board papers or the, 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 the way the agenda is in, the CEO, we, we had this thing where we would have produced a lot of information that the board said, that's not the way we'd like to get it. Can we change it or can we change it or even just mix around the agenda that it isn't every board meeting we can nearly guess what the, 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 the flow of items are going to be. So move things up the agenda or down the agenda and mix it up. The important thing with that, though, is, is what you mentioned, is having that feedback loop. So the chair actually going back to the chief exec and saying, these were the themes of the conversation that we had. Not giving away specifics unless it's been agreed by the whole board, but just kind of say, so you know, so there's no surprises from the chief executive for the chief executive is these were the issues that we were looking at so the chief exec knows where questions might be coming from in the future at board meetings and they have a better understanding of what's concerning the board of trustees collectively rather than a particular agenda by an individual trustee it's just that so it's that mutual reassurance i guess and that respect and trust and also that clarity of purpose and understanding of what they're all there trying to achieve. They've just got different parts to play on the pitch. Talk to me about induction of board members. You know, because this, again, we spent quite a bit of time last night talking about the tendency for induction is to give up. Here's, a, here's the manual, go off and read that and you know, you'll be fine. But um, I think the better boards are realising there's more to induction than just handing over a, a ring binder to the new, the new board member. That's also changed in my time at the Institute of understanding what go- a good induction process would look like. And I think, again, the impact of behavioural governance in the boardroom has actually made us think about talking to the trustee, finding out what it is that they need to know more about, and then shaping the induction process to fit their needs. And then at the end, asking them what worked well, 
what they could do a little bit more on, where they still might have some gaps in their knowledge and understanding, what formal or informal training they would like, would they like a, a fellow trustee to mentor them, all those kind of conversations. So I think back in the day when I started at the Institute, um, we would have probably had, here's a long list of documents that you really should give them. So as the Constitution. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Always. Um, and, and your charity commission or your charity regulator guidance on the legal duties and responsibilities and annual report and accounts and minutes and all of those things and governance handbooks and terms of reference, schemes of delegation, matters reserved. Yes, all that governance architecture. But um, it's actually trying to understand what's motivated them to be a trustee as well because if you've taken them onto the board because, I don't know, they have a fundraising, a HR, an accountancy or a governance background because that's what your board needs. If they then don't want to do that, you've not really got a very effective trustee. If they're only interested in learning more about whatever the cause is that you're delivering or more about um, service delivery, quality, um, stakeholder engagement, whatever it might be, and they don't really want to do the accountancy because they do that in their day job, then you've probably got a real mismatch in the trustee expectations and then what they're actually going to deliver for you. So that conversation is absolutely paramount. That that piece of work, you need to go back a step in terms of when you go out and recruit the sort of the, the approach that you take to identifying what type of person, what sort of skill set, what, and, and those conversations you have in the recruitment process uh, would be very, very important. That when the person eventually comes on board for that induction session, that they have a good sense, and you've got a good sense um, of where they're coming from, and and that because you see too far too often, it's who do I know? Yes. Um, yes. Who can I put the, Who can I? Whose arm can I twist to go on the board? And I think more and more we're looking at that in terms of who's around the board table, and have we got a right balance of, of skills, experiences, you know, and. and bit of diversity in, in, in its widest sense um, on, on the board because we do our natural inclination is to pick people like ourselves yeah. that sound like ourselves that you know, think and that, that is not a good idea for, for, for providing good oversight and guidance and direction is it, Diversity is so important at the moment and it is quite interesting that we had um, I think it was taken on trust that was report, reported by the Charity Commission showed that there were more trustees called John than there were female trustees in England and Wales and shortly after that came out I actually joined a board where there were three trustees called John and then three women once we'd been appointed so at least we'd neutralized it out but it is that I do look around boardroom tables when I'm doing board evaluations and training and also as a trustee myself and I just think we're white you can assume that we've all had a certain level of education and then you can infer a lot of other things about what you think our politics and our background and life experiences are. And you just think, is this really diverse? And I'm glad you said diversity in the widest sense because there's an awful lot of research out there about your, your, your personality and character can also impact the way that you come across tackling challenges and problem solving so introverts and extroverts think very differently and creatively and innovatively depending on that personality um, and it's, it's things like that that we have to take into account and actually there maybe are some benefits to having those interviews with those pre-interviews before trustees to work out actually is this someone like me or are they challenging me in a way that I feel 
slightly uncomfortable with, but in a good way, because that's going to be of benefit to the boardroom. And it is that we still have problems with trustee recruitment where it isn't what it's who you know rather than what you know and what you can bring to the table. And um, that is going to be a whole mindset and cultural shift that we're working on as a sector, but it's going to take a while. We could spend this, the, whole, the whole morning talking about this topic. But just maybe to, to wrap up in terms of if could we the theme is sort of getting the right behaviours and ethics. So what would be your top three sort of suggestions to boards to, to, to start thinking about between this and uh, you know the, the start of the new year that these are the sort of things we, we want to start doing? It's really easy to come out and highlight poor behaviours in the boardroom. Um, and that's why a couple of years ago we came, the Institute developed a good practice note on promoting positive behaviours in the boardroom. So things around embracing diversity wherever it might come from, accepting other people's opinions even if they don't attune with what your experience and understanding is. So looking at ways how you can promote that and develop that. And one of the ways you can do that is building the social connection with the trustees because if you just have trustees meet four times a year for four hours a time you don't really get to know and understand each other and what pushes their buttons and why they're there so so the social aspects of, of that trustee team is really important so maybe doing things around that I think having conversations about what are our ethics as an organization where are the red lines and actually do they attune with ours personally and individually and if they don't then maybe we should be looking at moving those people on thanking them very much for all their service but looking for somebody who can adopt those um, behaviors and then things like codes of conduct and board etiquettes things like that that kind of say we will not tell or tolerate these kind of behaviors and if you are looking to improve diversity don't improve don't just invite one of a kind on get two of the same kind on because one feels like tokenism and they don't speak up and they sit there thinking is it just me whereas if you've got two or three then they look at each other and go no it's them they're the ones with the issue so it's trying to make it's really thinking carefully about your board and how you build a good team and that takes work Excellent. Thank you. I really, really appreciate um, that. As I say, could easily spend the whole morning here teasing out those, those issues. So, Louise, thank you so much thank you. for agreeing. And um, as we'll be making good use of Louise's visit to Dublin because we're off to an, a governance event um, at lunchtime. And as I said at the beginning, Louise will be speaking at the Governance Award in the National Concert Hall. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't done so already, please check out some of the previous podcasts that we have done on some very good topics. Also on our website, carmichaelireland.ie, there's a whole range of resorts and supports that will help you on your governance journey. As I said, special thanks to Louise, our second guest um, contributor in our podcast series, and to Paul, our producer. Paul is one of our new new employees and um, embrace this idea of I can do this um, podcast and recording so thank you very much Paul for being our producer today. Thank you.